The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the world's greatest art heist. As a new Netflix documentary hits our screens, who stole the Gardner Museum's paintings by Rembrandt, Vermeer and Manet? And are we any closer to finding them? I talked to Jeff Siegel, producer of the new Netflix series This Is a Robbery, about the 1990 heist at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. Then, a bit later, I talked to Axel Ruger of the Royal Academy in London about vaccine passports and to Tanya Cohen-Uzieli of the Tel Aviv Museum of Art in Israel, where they have a green pass scheme from which museums are exempt. And in this week's Work of the Week, I speak to Susan Foister, Deputy Director of the National Gallery in London, about Jan Gossart's Adoration of the Kings, the subject of a show at the gallery and now an online interactive guide. Before all that, you may know that we've launched a book club at the Art Newspaper with news, excerpts, interviews, live events and more. You can sign up to the monthly book club newsletter and indeed all of our newsletters at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the newsletter link at the top right of the homepage. Now, on the 18th of March 1990, thieves stole 13 works of art, including masterpieces by Rembrandt and Vermeer, from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Massachusetts. The extraordinary story of that night and the 30 years of investigation and intrigue that have followed are the subject of a new four-part series on Netflix called This is a Robbery. I spoke to Jeff Siegel, producer of the series, about the greatest art heist in history. Jeff, to begin with, let's set the scene. What happened in March 1990 at the Garden Museum in Boston? So St. Patrick's Day night in Boston, March 17th into the 18th, 1990, two men dressed as police officers ring the doorbell uh, for the security desk at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and are buzzed in pretty quickly by the guard on duty. And... Um, without much effort, are able to lure the guard away from the security desk, away from the only panic button leading to the outside world, and are able to handcuff him, have him call down the other security guard who was on the rounds, and, you know, in just a matter of minutes, basically taking control over the whole museum. Fairly effortlessly, it seems like. Uh, it, you know, the protocol was that that it shouldn't be that easy, but it turned out to be that easy. And the two men obviously uh, turn out not to be police officers, uh, handcuff the, the two guards and tie them up down in the basement of the museum before going on an 81-minute excursion through the museum and stealing 13 uh, pieces of art, including a few you know, masterworks that are just unbelievably priceless. Uh, Rembrandt, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, another Rembrandt, A Lady and Gentleman in Black, the uh, Vermeer, one of only, you know, 34, 35 in the world, uh, the concert, uh, as well as uh, one of the more curious ones being the Manet stolen from the Blue Room downstairs, the Shea Tortoni, uh, as well as a few other uh, a few other items that are not necessarily of such great value monetarily or as well known, which is part of what's uh, kind of confounding about what what was stolen there. They stole uh, five-day goss sketches, but also uh, a Chinese coup 
and the finial from a Napoleonic flag, which are two items that just don't, to a lot of people, don't really seem to fit in with everything else that was stolen. And in in doing so, they bypassed a few other unbelievably priceless works of art, including a Raphael, a Michelangelo sketch. And although it's huge and there might have been logistics issues to get it out, one of the most famous paintings there, the Titian Rape of Europa. Yeah, I felt very glad to be standing in front of that Titian in London recently when it was lent to a show there, I have to say, because it's it's such an astonishing painting. And indeed, the the, the show really focuses on... Yes, all of the works, but there's this one particular Rembrandt, this seascape by Rembrandt, that that it feels is like this um, theme that kind of is is punctuating every episode, and it's such a tragic loss, that particular one, the seascape by Rembrandt. Absolutely. Uh, You know, I mean, we we interviewed uh, Peter Roloffs at the Rijksmuseum, who who really kind of eloquently speaks about that one in particular. I mean, obviously, I've lived with this story for a number of years now, getting this whole project made. And I feel this very kind of intimate connection with with some of the artwork, because we've looked at it so much. What's so weird is that it we haven't actually looked at it. We've only been looking at these digital representations of it. Thankfully, it was photographed well before the theft. And we're able to kind of see it and bring it to life a little bit. But yeah, that one in particular, that's the first empty frame that you see when you go to the Gardner Museum now uh, and you go up the stairs to the second floor to the Dutch room. The first one you see right when you walk through the doorway there is the uh, Storm on the Sea of Galilee frame. It says Rembrandt on the frame and the empty frames are still up and they're, they're still a big attraction at the museum, you know, <laughs> whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, at least it's at least people are hopefully going to be aware of it. But yeah, that one in particular, I mean, it's it's this unbelievable, you know, Anne Hawley, who we interview, who was the director of the museum for many years, also describes it. it it's this beautiful image uh, of everyone on this boat, you know, in the in the in the rough waters of the ocean. There's a lot of motion and, and feeling to it. And Jesus is on there. Rembrandt painted himself into it. And uh, yeah, it's certainly one that that draws everybody in probably the most out of out of any of the paintings uh, that were stolen. There's a lovely narrative arc to the series, which is, it seems to me, really crucial because on, on the one hand, you kind of focus on the extraordinary events of the night and then you follow the entanglements of the investigations. And the events on the night are just so extraordinary, aren't they? You've sort of outlined them there. But for instance, you talked about about the ease with which the, the thieves are able to access the building. Let's dwell on that for a bit, because there's this very, very characterful and curious security guard, a guy called Rick Abbott, who 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 is is a strange character to say the least, isn't he? He's definitely a character for sure. I mean it I think, you know, a lot of people watch it and we certainly point to it in episode one that there's a lot of suspicious things leading back to Rick. I mean, again, the protocol of the museum security is supposed to be that if two police officers show up, you're supposed to call the station, have them wait, have them identify themselves, confirm their identities before buzzing them in. He claims that he was never told that, but uh, he just saw two cops and said, all right, you know, just gut reaction. Okay, two police, sure, whatever you want. Um, but you know, I think, I think Rick is exemplary of the sign of the times back then, especially it wasn't just Rick. There were a lot of security guards there that, and we go into it a bit in the series that, 
you know, they, the museum kind of thinks they're very buttoned up with everything, but they might not has, have been as much as they thought they were as far as things that are going on there. I mean, these these are mostly college students or retirees who are looking for something to do. They're getting paid minimum wage. They're not getting the necessarily the most dedicated people to, to doing this. I think they're kind of just going through the motions. And as our other, we interviewed another guard and, and, and a former head of security there who reiterate, you know, I mean, this museum was there for you know 90 years or so before this robbery happened not and you know other than the occasional there were a, one or two little things over the years but n- nothing really happened most museums nothing ever happens so people may become complacent and just kind of go through the motions every day until this you know the big one hits and they're kind of unprepared for it the other interesting thing about rick and why why some people have pointed to him and, and what we mentioned in the series is that all of the artwork stolen, uh, except for one piece, was taken from the second floor. And there were security sensors and printouts, and and they they all go along with uh, you know the stolen items as as they were taken, as far as uh, the tracking the footsteps of the thieves. But the the very interesting thing is that the Shea Tortoni, the Manet from the Blue Room, is stolen from uh, a gallery downstairs on the first floor, and no alarms are triggered during the robbery that put anybody anywhere near that room during the robbery itself. So they go back to when was the last time someone was in this room? And it was Rick Abbott, the security guard, when he was on his rounds. And then no one shows up and triggers the sensors until the next morning when the investigators arrive. So, uh, you know, and they tested the system. We interviewed the guy uh, who was the security expert and consultant and tested it. And they said he said they're working perfectly. It's, so a lot of the people don't think that the thieves who pulled the robbery off went in that room, which leads you to wonder, you know, how could Rick not be involved? And interestingly as well, the the frame from that painting was left on the security director's desk. And Rick... Uh, and the security director at the time had had uh, kind of a contentious relationship, and Rick had actually put in his two weeks' notice already. So a lot of things point to that as well, but he's never been charged. There's never been enough evidence. He's always denied any involvement and you know, says it's just part of the many unexplainable things in this case. Among the other things that makes one gasp and wince in that first episode is, that, is the fact, that, as you mentioned, the thieves were there for 81 minutes and 81 minutes in which alarms were going off. And they seem utterly untroubled by this. I mean, as, as is pointed out in that episode, most thieves, if an alarm goes off, they scarper. But these guys, they stick around. So tell us about that. Yeah, there were individual alarms that that were not, as I mentioned, um, connected to the outside world, but uh, proximity alarms that were on some of the the bigger paintings. They're more for when the museum's open, if someone's leaning too close to it, it makes this noise and that, that alerts the gallery guard who would say, hey, back away from that. But the fact that they knew that, that they were kind of so casual about the about the crime yeah is 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 something else that's just so different about this than most i mean most other heists of any kind people get in get out they're not they're not lingering around and the fact that if they had that much time could they not have taken a lot more i mean there's there's so many things that just don't really necessarily add up in this one it's another mystery and of course then there's this process of looking at who could possibly have done it. And that takes you down so many wonderfully characterful routes, you know, because it's, you know, we're talking about mafiosos, right? 
For sure. I mean, well, the as we point out in there, the 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 kind of first low hanging fruit person to look at is this guy Miles Connor, who's an infamous thief in Boston and Massachusetts and throughout New England, and you know had stolen a Rembrandt in the seventies. Uh, and, and kind of pioneered using it uh, as a bargaining chip uh, to get out of jail. But he was in jail at the time, so he couldn't have done it. But he was also, although an independent operator, tied in pretty closely with a lot of people who were more associated with, with the mob in Boston. He had even pulled off certain other heists with, with some of those people who were connected to it. And there was a, a mob war going on there. There were uh, factions going against each other. There was kind of a power vacuum. It was sort of a perfect storm creating a scenario where people are not sure who who maybe went off on their own to do it. And perhaps whoever did it, as we allude to in the show, was uh, doing it to, to potentially uh, get a bargaining chip to try to get maybe a mob boss out of jail because they were being heavily prosecuted at that time by the FBI. And that was another reason. The FBI was focused so heavily on uh, the Italian mob there that maybe their attentions weren't as <laughs> as much as they should be on this art crime. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people, you know, you, you work, you deal in the art world mostly. Obviously, you know, there are outside people who don't appreciate it or respect it or have any knowledge of it to that degree. And they might think, well, yeah, so they stole some paintings or some some sketches from 500 years ago. Okay, well, we got, you know, we got people dying here or we have a thing that that's going to make my career if I bust part of the La Cosa Nostra here. Right. And um, one of those characters is this guy called Bobby Donati. And, and he's particular evidence around him is um, has been, you know, immaculately and, and um, forensically researched by Stephen Kirkjian, who is this great legendary journalist from um, the Boston Globe, who was involved in the Spotlight team that's been mythologized on film in that great film Spotlight. And, and Stephen worked with you in the production, right? And he, he, he's, a, he's a major talking head in the series, but also his, his case you know, suggesting that, that Donati's involved is incredibly compelling, isn't it? It is, yes. Steve's a great guy. You know, his, this is kind of his life's work. And uh, he, wrote a, he wrote a great book on this called Master Thieves that came out a few years ago, covered it extensively in the Boston Globe. Uh, he, we had been talking with him since the beginning of the project. Uh, he's always been a resource, and at least on background information. And uh, yeah, so he, he kind of consulted with us and and it was definitely somewhat important to kind of uh, contextualize things and bring on board to explain. But yeah, Bobby Donati seems to go kind of connect to everybody in this thing. Uh, he, he links it to the mafia. He links it to Miles Connor, who had, you know, surmised similar robberies. He links it to some of these other people that the FBI think had the possession of the artwork after the robbery who were also all connected, intertwined to this TRC auto electric garage in Dorchester, which was this, you know, <laughs> a place where basically criminal activity was taking place under the subterfuge of, you know, fixing cars. And they were running a big drug ring out of it. So it was kind of a catch-all for criminality in Boston at the time. And, and you know, we, we trace generally in the series the, the sort of more plausible uh, theory that the FBI has investigated for so long, which is that, that 
they're not sure of exactly who, but it's someone in this grouping of people that are all connected in this mesh, you know, was involved in it and, or probably went into the museum. Not sure exactly who, you know, if it was the Nadi or Reisfelder or this guy, David Turner, or Lenny DiMuzio, those seem to be the plausible ones. But whoever went in there then brought it back. And, and it seems that the art was likely dispersed among other people in this kind of web. But obviously we still are missing all the paintings. So who knows? You know, there there are a few other interesting leads, I would say, that we researched this project for many years. It was a long time in development and research before we started doing anything. And, you know, it's it's a great platform. I mean, we're so excited that it's on Netflix now because if for nothing else, that because it, it comes out all over the world, it's a geosynchronous global release, as we like to say. And if nothing else, we hope it'll shine the biggest spotlight on this case than that has ever been. Weirdly, you know, out in Boston, it's relatively well known. The further you get out into New England, maybe people have heard of it. Even you get down to where I am in New York, a couple hours away, it's not very well known. And beyond that, it's known even less. Now, maybe in the art community, that's kind of, you know, heralded as the mother load of art heists. But it, it just the word hasn't gotten out there. I did a bunch of man on the street interviews in Boston. They didn't make it into the cut, but I was just curious. You stop random people, who knows what? And I would say some people, the people that knew about it were really into it and knew a lot, but a lot of people even there didn't know about it. And I, one other thing I think so important is that it's a, it's one of the first very visual representations of the crime in the story. There have been books, there's been podcasts, there's been a lot of articles but there hasn't been much in the way. I mean, this is artwork. People need to know what they look like because to have any any hope of, of getting them back. If they're out there somewhere, we hope that at least shining a light and, and hopefully, you know, showing the, the pieces themselves on screen will trigger something in someone's mind. Even the people I stopped in Boston who knew a lot about this said, oh, they might know what one or two of them look like, but they don't know what a lot of them look like. So that's certainly the goal. That it'll shake something loose from somewhere in the world, but we'll see. Yeah, that's really that's really fascinating. I mean, one you're right about that visual element, and I found that very instructive because I I'd listened to the last scene podcast, and and it, it this entangled web in the form of an audio podcast is it's really intriguing. But all, all the time you're having to stop and look on Google again who these people are a bit, you know. Whereas actually in the form of a an, a visual documentary, it was really nice the way that you were able to consistently picture these characters and their faces reappear and reappear and also the use of maps to kind of to get the geography and the vast geography of entry that it encompasses was really helpful and, and that's obviously a really key thing that you initially you're, you're, you establish the kind of local context but then you you, you recognize this it, it effectively becomes a global story right absolutely and yeah i mean it look it is it, it's a tough one we, we grappled a lot with the different graphics and how do we show this in a way that people can comprehend it because it's such a complicated mess there's 50 bobbies involved and <laughs> there's all these italian guys and it, and it's you know it's went from this guy to that guy and this two-bit criminal to that guy and it's 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 tough for your average person to follow unless you do a really deep dive on it so we tried as hard as we could to make it uh digestible for people with the visual aid of of the repetitive headshots of the same person and the timeline and the map so uh, hopefully, hopefully it's it's uh, something that people can follow pretty easily now. It's tough to tell because, you know, like I said, we did so much research and talked to so many people about it for so many years. This is five or six years in the making. In our research, too, we obviously decisions had to be made. I, I produced it a, a, alongside 
uh, two guys that I've been working with for 11 years now, the Barnacle Brothers, Nick and Colin Barnacle. Colin directed, and Nick's an executive producer. And Colin had to make some choices about what would make it in. We we have a relatively big canvas here, but you know it's four parts. We we can't go on forever. I know some of the podcasts and other material are even more comprehensive and sprawling, but there there are some very interesting theories that that didn't actually make it into the film you hope everybody watches it and enjoys it and maybe it it shakes something loose in the investigation but we also would you know if certain people lock into it and are fascinated by it the way that we were and that seems to be a thing you know we go into it at the end we talk about this this sort of uh, it's kind of a mirage that draws in a lot of people, this story that has over the years, many journalists and many, uh, just a lot of people, you know, there's, there's people out there who are just enthusiasts also who are kind of obsessed with this case, any kind of unsolved stuff. And as far as, you know, doing a deep dive and, and trying to figure it out and can we advance this ourselves? And I, there's gotta be something that someone overlooked and I'm going to, I'm going to, connect the right dots and and we you know a few people in the film refer to it as gardener sickness which is this sort of desire and obsession with this case that ultimately makes you feel like you're going crazy and you have to step away from because it always ends up right back where it started yeah absolutely i wanted to talk a bit about that i mean one of the things that i think the film does very well is 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 really capture the the brutality of the world that these paintings entered into so you've got this extraordinary beautiful palace created by Isabella Stewart Gardner and when they leave that they enter into this grimy terrible world in which most of the people who are probably involved in the theft initially die frankly are murdered or maybe one dies of a drug overdose there's a brutality about this story and you you, you had to convey that right absolutely it's a fascinating juxtaposition of these two totally polar opposite worlds that all exist. You know, Boston's an interesting place. I'm not from there. The Barnacle Brothers, who I've worked with, are. And that that was the genesis of this. They knew about this. I had never heard of it um, up until, you know, five or six years ago when we kind of started developing it. But Boston's an interesting mix of a lot of different cultures and, and groups and backgrounds of people. And there's obviously the academia and the and the museums and the high art and the and the Brahmin culture there. But then there's also this kind of, you know, I mean, not that it doesn't exist in other places, too, but the the criminal underworld and the intersection there of these two worlds that collide through this crime is definitely fascinating. You imagine that the I mean, these these paintings are on the wall. And yes, like you mentioned, I don't know if you've been there, but I'd never heard of the Gardner Museum before we started working on this. And uh, you know, now we've been many times and filmed there and got to know it. But it is—it's a breathtaking place. Uh, the the courtyard in the, in the in the center of it, it this beautiful uh, flora—it's incredible. Cloistered hallways and rooms surrounding it on every side with different themes. And I mean, it, it, some of the rooms make you—you know—kind of almost remind me of the White House. And they have different names and different themes. And it's just beautiful. Uh, Isabel Stewart Gardner did a fantastic job basically building this from scratch, reconstructing it from this Venetian palace uh, in Boston. So you can just imagine those paintings, you know, on there in this in this beautiful home uh, that turned into this incredible museum that was sort of this this, you know, kind of gem that not everybody knew about, but those who knew knew that it was this place and, and loved it. And then suddenly, you know, one night are just I mean, they're brutally cut from the frames, too, yeah. uh, which is 
another fascinating thing, which, I mean, why would someone do that? Are, are, you know, who knows what the condition is of them? What, what's the reasoning behind doing that? You know, from what we've heard, most of them would not be able to be rolled up in tubes anyway because of, you know, having multiple layers of canvas and, and, and they would be kind of brittle. So uh, the question is, you know, why was that done? And then, you know, who know, we don't know where they're taken. Everyone thinks they kind of were disseminated through this group of criminals that were operating out of this uh, garage that I mentioned. But yeah, suddenly they're just, you know, being passed around to different uh, people in a totally different world. And, and, and who knows? I mean, one of the things that we've always thought was fascinating was, like you mentioned, that so many, the peop- all the people basically that the FBI thinks may have gone into the museum, with the one exception of David Turner, who is still alive and free. The rest of them all died very soon after this, within a year or so, a year or two of the crime. So we've always made the connection of, you know, this whole story kind of has a Fargo feel to it a little bit, like the Coen Brothers film, where it's kind of these bumbling criminals who are in over their head and keep doubling down on it and maybe you know ended up in a situation that they were not not expected for maybe they they oh yeah we'll go in and steal these paintings didn't realize the heat that would be on them because of it didn't realize we took you know rembrandt's only seascape one of only 34 35 vermeers in the world this is a big thing Uh uh-oh this wasn't just something we stole out of somebody's house. This is a big deal. Let's stash these things. And then other criminal stuff happens, and they end up dead for one reason or another. And, you know, maybe they're buried out in the woods somewhere. Who knows where the... So the question is, did the secret of where the artwork went die with some of those people uh, who may have gone into the museum, who may have been stashing it, and who have been gone for almost as long as it's been since the crime itself took place? I'm bound to ask you, if you were to put money on it today, who stole them and do you think they will ever be recovered? Well, so I have an interesting one myself. Everyone on, on the project, and I'm sure everyone watching it has a different theory, but I actually did a lot of research down uh, about a guy who is not mentioned in our series. He's a guy named Brian McDevitt, and some other projects have, have brought him up a little bit more. And He's an interesting kind of alternate theory, totally disconnected from the primary theory about the FBI. The FBI did look into him at a certain point, but he was basically this precocious kid from Swampscott, Massachusetts, and very bizarre, full of himself. Uh, he stole money out of, a, out of a safety deposit box in Boston and at age 19 and and then disappeared. And this was uh, in 1979. In 1980, he shows up in Glens Falls, New York, upstate New York, not all that far from Boston, a couple hours. He is reporting, purporting to be, he introduces himself to everyone. He's being chauffeured around in a, in a Bentley and he is dressed to the nines and he tells everyone he, he is a Vanderbilt. His name's Paul Vanderbilt. He's of the of the obviously the famous wealthy connected family, and he starts hanging around this other uh, museum that's up there that was a private collection turned into a museum called the Hyde Collection, and it has a lot of similarities. They have a Rembrandt there. They were called the Little Gardener. There's a lot of weird crossover there, and he kind of he befriends the museum director and starts asking a lot of questions and starts saying he wants to be on the board and maybe he can get him money and there's a lot of suspicion surrounding this guy and uh, a few months later in right before Christmas of that year, 1980, there's a failed attempt of this guy McDevitt 
and, and another accomplice of hijacking a FedEx truck, uh, trying to pose as FedEx employees and going into the museum to steal some of the artwork. They were very bumbling in this one. They got caught in traffic, didn't make it there in time, uh, and and it never went off. But from the from the statements, and they were obviously they were arrested for having uh, ethered the FedEx driver, which sounds like an awful situation. But uh, so there was a lot of similarities there. And then interestingly, McDevitt moved back to Boston, went to school there, and was living there at the time of the Gardner heist. And he was kind of a career con man who shortly thereafter moved out to L.A., lied his way into the Writers Guild, pretended he had all these credits he didn't have, and was always talking about the gardener and would tell people and drop clues and hints that he did it. Now, whether or not he was just a con man kind of who latched onto this thing or but, you know, the similarities are so bizarre that 10 years prior, he attempted this other robbery and failed at it. And I'll, I talked to a lot of people who knew him and it, it, I was just dumbfounded by the fact that so many people that knew him directly all say, Oh, a hundred percent. He did the gardener. So he's got a very interesting story. It would make a whole great other separate documentary. I encourage anyone to look into his story. There's a lot of stuff there, but he's somebody who I've always had a suspicion about being involved in, in the robbery. And, you know, again, that's part of the fun of this is that everybody can watch it or can dive into it a little bit more on their own and come up with their own theory about who did it. And we'll see if we're ever vindicated with it. And do I believe the artwork will ever be recovered? I certainly hope so. Uh, I think the best chance is us finally putting it on this, this uh, global spotlight. Not that, you know, our investigation is necessarily yielding anything, but just the, the very fact that we're putting it out there uh, I know Steve Kirkchin forever has said we just need to shine a big spotlight on this. It's got to get out of Boston. It's got to get out of New England. Some people think that the artwork's probably stashed, you know, within a mile or two of the museum. Maybe it's right there, but who knows? It's a big world. It could be anywhere. It could. There's 13 things. They could be separated. They could be. One of them could be here. One of them could have ended up there. You never know. So uh, I'm I'm hopeful. You certainly hope. I mean, especially anyone who cares at all about art, that at a minimum they weren't destroyed. And that, that, that they'll be recovered in decent condition. Because everyone says the ultimate catharsis for this story would be, since they have the empty frames hanging up in the museum still, to be able to put them back in there and kind of, you know, restore equilibrium to the museum. Jeff, thank you so much for talking to us on the podcast. Yeah, that was great. I appreciate it. This is a Robbery is streaming now on Netflix. And do also seek out Last Scene, a podcast series about the Gardner Museum thefts from WBUR Radio and the Boston Globe, available wherever you normally listen to your podcasts. In a moment, I talk to Axel Ruger and Tanya Cohen-Uzieli about vaccine passports, and we look at Jan Gossart's adoration of the kings. But first, here are some of the top stories on the art newspaper's website this week. A new TV documentary on the Salvatore Mundi seems to have solved one of the key mysteries surrounding the world's most expensive painting, why it never appeared in the Louvre's 2019 Leonardo da Vinci show. 
As Alison Cole and Georgina Adam write, according to the film, the Louvre's examination of the painting concluded that Leonardo himself only contributed to the picture. Consequently, officials representing Saudi Arabia's crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, who acquired the painting at Christie's for $450 million in 2017, put pressure on the museum to exhibit the painting. But France's president, Emmanuel Macron, stepped in and the exhibition opened without the Salvatore Mundi. The film, Saviour for Sale, will be broadcast on the France 5 channel on the 13th of April. A portrait of Picasso's teenage lover and golden muse, Marie-Thérèse Walter, created during a critical point in his career, is coming up for auction, writes Daniel Cassidy. The 1932 work will be featured in Christie's newly rebranded 20th Century Art Evening Sale in New York on the 11th of May, with an estimate of $55 million. The painting was in the acclaimed Picasso 1932 exhibition at Paris's Musée Picasso and Tate Modern in London in 2017-2018, to a tour of which you can hear in the archive episodes of this podcast. The work last came to auction in February 2013, when it hammered for £28.6 million at Sotheby's in London. And finally, 22 royal Egyptian mummies, 18 kings and four queens, were transported across Cairo last weekend as part of a lavish parade that was broadcast live on state television, writes Gareth Harris. The ancient rulers, housed in oxygen-free, nitrogen-filled capsules, were driven in chronological order of rain and taken on a five-kilometre route across the capital that had to be freshly repaved to ensure a smooth journey. The mummies, along with 17 sarcophagi, left the Egyptian Museum near Tahrir Square to be rehoused in the new National Museum of Egyptian civilization in the Alfosta district south of Cairo. The museum officially opened on the 4th of April, but the new exhibits to be shown in the Royal Hall of Mummies won't be on view until the 18th of April. You can read these stories and much more on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. As a leader within the art market, Christie's is proud to have launched a new global sustainability initiative. Christie's believes that the experience of art is positive and meaningful, a source of personal joy and enrichment, as well as a privilege. This experience, however, should not come at the expense of the environment. Christie's is pledging to be net zero by 2030, with a 50% reduction in carbon emissions. This ambitious commitment will inform everything from how their buildings are powered to how artworks are packed, transported and marketed. And work has already begun. Learn more about Christie's commitment to sustainability on christies.com. Welcome back. Just a reminder that you can listen to new episodes of our other podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening to this. The latest episode is an illuminating conversation with Doris Salcedo, and next Wednesday it's A Brush With, Doho Sa. Now, this week, Denmark launched a COVID-19 passport scheme. The Corona Pass is available digitally or on paper to people who have either been fully vaccinated, have tested positive for COVID-19 two to 12 weeks previously, or tested negative in the previous 72 hours. It currently allows people to enter certain businesses, including hairdressers, but will be extended to restaurants, museums, theatres and cinemas from the 6th of May. Similar schemes are under consideration in other parts of the world, including, amid much debate, in the UK. In Israel, meanwhile, a Green Pass system is in place, but museums there are exempt. Anyone can visit them. So, while the UK government mulls over vaccine passports, I spoke to Axel Ruger, Secretary and Chief Executive of the Royal Academy of Arts in London, to get his views. Axel, when you did an interview with the Evening Standard in London recently, you talked about vaccine passports as being anathema to the Royal Academy's inclusive ethos. Can you explain a bit more about that? Yes, uh, I mean, as a public institution and as an art institution, uh, our mission really is to be as accessible to 
everyone as we can be. And so, you know, we really want to be open uh, to all and really inclusive to, to everyone. And um, also, we feel that it's particularly important coming out of the pandemic and restarting public life and letting people to engage with live art again, as it were, because I think they have been missing this so much over this period and will be a great contribution also of sort of, you know, the healing, as it were, post-pandemic lockdown and isolation and loneliness and all of that. So then to throw up a barrier and say, well, you can only come in, you know, when you have a vaccine passport uh, is therefore to us sort of anathema to, you know, what we are about. And therefore, I think it's a real problem. And when we are allowed to reopen, hopefully, of course, by the 17th of May, then a large proportion of the population, particularly younger people, will not be vaccinated yet. So it would exclude them right away. And that for us would really be unacceptable. Can you explain? I mean, obviously, the Royal Academy is a very unique model within the British Museum culture because it isn't publicly funded. Lots of people listening to this probably don't know that. And therefore, you know, you're not one of the national museums. But are you involved in conversations with the government about the whole process of reopening? And can you, for instance, lobby the government about vaccine passports? Uh, Well, uh, we are indeed not uh, in the same position as the national institutions or any publicly funded institutions who are in much more regular contact with their funding bodies. You know, we generate all our funds ourselves. So we have an obligation towards our public and towards our friends and to everyone who, you know, pays for tickets to come to the academy to see our exhibitions. So therefore, we are somewhat outside of those direct discussions. I, of course, you know, am in touch with... um, colleagues uh, in the field with my museum colleagues and on the later opening date we've tried to lobby government because I still think it's unfair that we're not in the same category as retail uh, with regards to reopening but five weeks later Uh, but that's a different matter but in this case we have not really undertaken any lobbying yet also uh, because we are not entirely sure yet you know which way the government will really go on this. For example, when we look at Israel, where they introduced the so-called Green Pass, they did not make museums part of that scheme. So you can still visit museums in Israel without the Green Pass. So therefore, you know, we're we're holding back slightly, but we are also in touch with organizations like Holbein. and they are definitely, you know, actively also uh, talking to government and are part of those discussions. And we are certainly aware of all the discussions that are going on. One of the arguments for vaccine passports is that because everyone is vaccinated, you can therefore limit the restrictions a bit and more people potentially could visit galleries and museums. What do you think about that argument? Well, I think there is, of course, some validity in that argument because it's logical. Of course, you know, you know, the, the safer you make it and the more you can be assured that people have been vaccinated are not carriers, you know, the, the more you decrease the risk um, and therefore you could potentially put more people in. The only problem is that we will also have a proportion of people in the public who will not be vaccinated for all sorts of health reasons, for reasons of creed, for reasons that are not for us to judge, really. And to exclude those people, uh, you know, to us is really problematic because we feel 
as an arts organization, in that regard, we are different from a retail place or a restaurant where uh, they have a different sort of mission, as it were, in life. One of our key missions is not to make profit or to earn money, but to make art accessible to as many people as we humanly can. And if I then throw up barriers, that makes it really problematic for us. One of the things that it seems to me that this whole pandemic has indicated is that governments are struggling with where to place museums in society. In Britain, they're being lumped in with cinema and theatre. Elsewhere, they're not. So it's, it seems to me, and I'm sure this must be something that you thought about, is, is that you need to convince still governments about the power of museums, what their role is, and how they differ from other cultural experiences, don't you? Yeah, I don't think it's quite as simple, perhaps, as that. Or it is actually simpler in a different way, that government decided basically to lump all sort of what they call sort of leisure attractions together. And if you don't have an outdoor facility, but you're an indoor facility, we are put together with the trampoline park and with any other what they refer to as leisure facilities. And because I would argue, of course, you know, a cultural experience in the theater is as valid and as important and as joyful, entertaining, consoling, um, inspiring as a museum visit. So I would not draw a distinction there. The only distinction that I would draw is that we, of course, have open spaces where you can freely mill around, which makes the proposition in terms of how people interact with each other very different from a fixed seating in a theater for a certain period of time. Um, and therefore, I felt there could have been a different treatment of museums from other arts organizations. But I guess uh, government just made it easy for itself and not drawing such fine distinctions, but, you know, come up only with these sort of generalized things because it's equally uh, sort of uh, inexplicable that commercial galleries you know will be uh, allowed to reopen next week whereas museums are not and that's under the argument that commercial galleries are essentially shops so all of a sudden you know then uh, it suits them well to be shops um, and not art spaces as it were in this regard so it's a somewhat confused matter and we have tried to lobby government we've written to various parties also including uh, the the minister of culture uh, where we pretty much didn't get any response and the, otherwise the responses we got is well we have to be careful and those are the guidelines and you just have to uh, work with us and accept it. We've heard all the way through the pandemic about the government listening to scientists I mean that argument is actually disputable in all sorts of ways but I know that, for instance, when the French cultural institutions made their arguments to their government, they were using empirical data, scientific data, which was saying museum spaces are safer than other spaces. What about in the UK? Have you got scientific evidence or evidence that you've gathered yourselves for the relative safety of the Royal Academy spaces compared to other spaces? Well, I mean, the the trouble is with the with the empirical data is no, we don't really have any because there's just one simple answer. We've not had a single report during last year's reopening that a COVID infection happened on our premises, despite the track and trace system. So in that regard, um, you know, that's all I can say to that, and there is no sort of really further further research. But we can show and have shown and have demonstrated and illustrated that, of course. You know, all the precautions we're taking and we're going beyond initially. It's also what government uh, recommended because when we reopened last year, we were the second museum after the National Gallery to reopen in London. We, against government advice, asked 
every member of the public to wear face covering. And we got actually sort of, you know, uh, a phone call from the ministry saying, how dare you go against government advice with that? And because, I mean, That's we're not publicly funded, so we can do what we want. And only a few weeks later, all of a sudden, you know, face coverings became mandatory in all public institutions. So that shows you a bit that kind of sometimes challenging conversation that takes place. Indeed, it does. Let's talk a bit about the Royal Academy. I'm interested to know, as you say, you were the second institution to open after the National. In the summer, did you find there was any resistance to returning to the Royal Academy or were you able to operate broadly at capacity in terms of visitor numbers? Well, we were definitely easily operating at capacity because it was a very limited capacity. I mean, we started out (laughs) very cautiously with 30% and then going, you know, marginally up. But we had exhibitions on, we had the summer exhibition in the autumn, and all of that, you know, was very well attended. And we sold certainly the tickets that we had, so we could not sense any sort of reluctance. Also, now that we have started sort of, of course, ticket sales for the exhibitions coming up, there's definitely a great, great desire for people to come in there. I'm sure there are, and we know this anecdotally from uh, our friends, that there is still reluctance among people to come uh, back. Um, but, uh, you know, it is going to be a whole journey for people to rediscover public life and to decide for themselves what level they will find comfortable. I can assure you now that by next Monday, Soho will be on fire, so to speak. You know, it's going to be so packed as it was on Super Saturday after the you know first lockdown. And there will be many people who will take a wide berth and say, you know, that's too uncomfortable. That is just still too close for me. Um, whereas others, you know, will just throw themselves in head first. So in that sense, it's going to be a very varied response. Um, and particularly people, many of our also regular visitors come from outside of London. I'm sure they will also carefully, you know, test the waters to see how public transport is doing and how safe they feel. And it's going to be extremely subjective. Yeah. Um, Tell me about the finances at at the Royal Academy. When I spoke to Rebecca Salter on this podcast last year, she said that the Academy was losing approximately a million pounds a month. Is that the scale of it? Is it worse than that? And is it true also that you've lost lots of friends in this process? Well, I mean, it is uh, the the scale is not as bad anymore, but that also has to do with mitigating circumstances because we um, drastically cut our cost base, uh, our budget. Uh, So we brought that back by, you know, many millions towards the end of last year, which also necessitated, unfortunately, you know, severe cuts in our staffing. So we had to let 27% of our workforce go um, by the end of January. That is, of course, you know, for us essential to do this in order to ensure that we can survive this on the reserves that we have, because also we were not successful with the uh, cultural recovery fund from the government. Uh, So we have to do it on our own resources and our own fundraising. So in that sense, the situation is still tense. We really have to watch, you know, every penny and be very, very careful with regards to the reintroduction of new activity and more activity. And indeed, I mean, with regards to friends, and they constitute our biggest income source. Going into the pandemic, we had 97,000 paying members, paying friends. And uh, this is now dipped below 80,000. 
so yes, that's a significant loss and uh, we will work hard to build that back. But I'm also grateful to the many, many, many friends because we still, you know, have also retained just under 80,000 until now that they have stuck with us and remained loyal. And that's, you know, also rather incredible. Um, and we are, you know, hoping that they will all sort of come back and some more when we reopen. And you're rewarding those people with some pretty amazing shows coming up. Just tell us what you're going to be reopening with in May. Well, first of all, we are extremely happy in a sense, and I hope that there's not too much plight on the other end, uh, because we will be able to keep the Emin Munk exhibition for longer than we had anticipated. We can now keep it until the 1st of August. So that means, because Tracy's show had only been open for like not even a day, really, when we went into lockdown. So only a handful of people have really seen it. And um, so now we will, if it all holds true, and we will reopen in May, um, then we will still have a decent run for the exhibition of Emin Munk before it then travels on to the Munk Museum, which will then open after the summer. Then we are going to open in the main galleries with an exhibition in a reduced footprint of the main galleries. Uh, it should be said with an exhibition of David Hockney's iPad paintings that he made in Normandy last year in spring. And that exhibition we will show first in the main galleries and then for an extended run in the autumn in Burlington Gardens in those galleries as well. So it will have two iterations, as it were, which is unusual for us, but it's a great opportunity. And then we will also, and I'm very excited about that as well, and very different, show an exhibition of a former student of our schools, Michael Armitage. His exhibition is at the moment in Munich. Unfortunately, they have also been closed for most of the run of the exhibition, tragically. But we will take this exhibition to come to us. And so when we reopen in May, hopefully then that exhibition will be uh, launched as well. So it's a it's also a nice variety between Tracy, David and Michael. It's a broad breadth of types of artists, um, of backgrounds. Um, so, you know, we're really, really pleased with that. So that's the program for the summer. And then in the autumn, we will have the summer exhibition yet again in the autumn and then further exhibitions further down the line this year. Okay, well, good luck with the reopening. Thank you. And fingers crossed you can stay open for much longer. Thanks for joining us, Axel. Thank you very much. You can find out more about the exhibitions Axel mentioned at royalacademy.org.uk. Now, as Axel said, Israel already has a Green Pass scheme, but its museums are free to visit even for those who have not been vaccinated. I spoke to Tanya Cohen-Uzieli, the director of the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, to find out why. Tanya, before we talk about the Green Pass specifically, can you tell us where Israel is at in terms of freedom in society and coronavirus restrictions? This is a very interesting question (laughs) uh, because uh, I do think that uh, during this last year, regarding freedom and uh, the personal and individual freedom, uh, it was a challenging um, period. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we were used to receive um, all the sudden SMS uh, saying you have to stay in lockdown, to stay in quarantine. And this is something that I don't think that happened um, in other parts of the world. Uh, so it, I think on the personal level that it was uh, disturbing and um, challenging really the freedom of the individuals. Mm-hmm. 
This is my personal uh, approach and thinking about uh, the situation. I have to say that uh, I don't know if uh, this helped or uh, the vaccination helped. Uh, we are now in a very good situation. But the legal, democratic issues and values, I think that were challenged during this period. Right. But you, for instance, in terms of visiting a restaurant, is it possible to just go and sit in a restaurant inside and eat a meal? No. Today, in the inside public local, which are closed, uh, you are not able to enter without a green pass or you have to show that you did the test 48 hours ago and it's negative. Those are the two issues that you can, um, during this, you can, uh, through this, you can enter a public small place. But museums is not included in, in the Green Pass scheme, is it? Why is that? Now, museum, it's a different stories. Um, in particular for museum that are big museum, like our museum that is more than 35,000 meters squares. It is a public space, it is closed, but we have several things. First of all, we have a climate system and air condition system, which is cleaning itself very often. The second thing is that you can, in a way, regulate the flux of the public there. So we have restriction. I mean, we cannot get, let people enter like we did in the past. We can regulate and we can restrict the amount of persons in a, in, a, in a gallery, in a small gallery, in the public space, but it's something that we can, in a way, manage. And this is why we don't need the Green Pass. For us, as operators of museum, it's very, very important because this gives us the possibility to bring families with children that are not allowed to enter small places, even restaurants sometimes inside. So, um, and we function in this way even during the summer when uh, the situation was really not so good, but we succeeded to manage. And actually we could check that in our places, nobody got affected. So it is a safe place and we were marketing it as a safe place. And I have to say that there is the only cultural place which is open. So um, this is what I can say. And for us, it was a very important battle that the Ministry of Culture um, succeeded to do for us. I was going to ask about that because, for instance, in the UK, all forms of culture are effectively linked. So on Monday next week, I can go to a commercial gallery because it is a retail space. But but I can't go to a museum until the middle of May because it's a cultural space alongside cinemas, theatres, etc. So it seems that somehow the cultural leaders were able to lobby the Israeli government to say we are a different kind of space to a theatre or a cinema. The circulation of air is different within the museum space and you were effective in doing that. So can you say something about the arguments that you made? And it, it seems clear that the cultural ministers listened to you. Yes, the fact is that because the commercial places where you are not sitting down, they can function and even you can say that in UK they are functioning. When we approached the Ministry of Culture, we made a point of it. 
we told him that actually we don't have to behave like theater. We are sitting in the same place and really you are sitting near a person. Here we can maintain the three important things, which are distance, wearing a mask, and sanitizers that are sparse all over the museum. And as long as I can regulate the flux of the people and the amount of people, I know how to handle it. And there is no reason to behave like a theater. So I think that this is a point and this is a very important point. We made it clear just the after the first lockdown and we were one of the first museums who reopened just in the 1st of June when we were closed March, April and May. So I think that this was an important point. We made it as the beginning. So the vaccination actually didn't help us more than the fact that actually all the society here is open and, um, and it's a nice atmosphere and a kind of optimism. So people are going around. What I can say that in a, our museum, like many other museums, we have theater, we have concert, we have lectures for uh, uh, adults, we have courses of art. And now the vaccination helped us to renew all this programming, which was on hold during all this period. Can you say, what, first of all, what capacity can the museum reach at this point? So it's obviously restricted because of social distancing, but, but what level of your former visitors can you, can you go up to? Just today came out a new regulation, but until today we could uh, offer one visitor for 15 metres square. So now they low down the proportion, so it's one person um, among seven metres squares. So for us that we have 35,000 metres squares, you know, it's, uh, we still can have a, a very good capacity. But because we want to be on the safe side and we have restricted our amount of people of no more than uh, 3,000, 3,500 people a day, regulating the public in slots. And we are doing the booking through the digital platform. So actually we are not activating any kind of selling tickets on place. And in this way, we can regulate the flux of the people, the amount of people, and even to know who is the person who is coming to the museum. So I think that this method can be adopted by all the museums in the world because um, I think that demonstrates that um, a museum can function. You're still able to gather the data about the people that are coming into the museum, as you say, because people are booking online, so you know exactly who they are. So why not just have the Green Pass system in the museum? No, I'm telling you why. Because a museum is a place for a family, and we know that children are not getting vaccinated. So this is the important thing, that actually we are open and we are the only cultural institution which is open for children. And this is for us very important. So we don't want to be aligned to the Green Pass. We want to be able to accept all the people for the adults course or for other kind of activities. It is okay, but for galleries, we have family children, a children exhibition, 
We have um, a family center and a lot of different activities um, adapted to coronavirus. I mean, people cannot take material or sharing um, laboratories or material, but we have succeeded to, for example, creating special activities uh, which you are taking your own unit and you can work around the museum. It is very important because in this way we are open for the children. Has there been any resistance to coming to the museum because it doesn't have a green pass scheme? In other words, is there any nervousness among the public that they will be coming to a museum when there, you know, people around them may not have been vaccinated? I don't think so. I mean, the numbers um, don't tell this story. I can say that during the summer, before the vaccine, we had special hours for adults, I mean, for old people. We create a special, so and we create a kind of a time that people can feel that they're most, almost alone in the gallery to keep them safe. But now... I don't see that people here, I have to say that uh, if I could convey the the feeling that outside here in Israel, uh, people feel safe and the kind of coronavirus is behind us in a way. You make a very strong argument for the educational role of culture. And therefore, what are your thoughts on the fact that other cultural institutions, not museums, are therefore limiting that educational role in not permitting children to enter their spaces? What do you, What are your thoughts on that? I think that it's terrible and that they do have to find a way. Usually the host of Theatre for Children, we are now thinking of a way that children can come, get tests on the spot and enter inside. So because we have to be aware of the fact that in this situation, children are the vehicle, unfortunately, of the virus. So... First of all, we hope that now the vaccine is coming down even to this age. But second, I do think that we have to find a way. In Israel, I know that in Haifa, for example, they find a way to have a theater for children outside. And um, I do think that because the culture has an important cultural mission, I do think that we need to find a way. Each way is a good one for me, I think so. So what would your advice be to museum leaders in other parts of the world where vaccine passports are being considered? I do think that museum, they don't have to accept the green pass. I think the museum has to find their own regulation and let all the people come into the museum. Okay, well, Tanya, thank you so much for talking to us on the podcast. Thank you very much. You'll be able to read more about this subject in the coming weeks at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Sensing the Unseen, Step into Gossert's Adoration was a small interactive exhibition at the National Gallery in London that opened for just a few days before the latest coronavirus lockdown began in December. Focusing on one of the great Northern Renaissance masterpieces in the National Collection, the Adoration of Kings of around 1510 to 1515 by the Flemish artist Jan Gossart, the show should open again in May when UK museums finally open after five long months. But in the meantime, the gallery has launched a version 
edition for mobile phones with audio by sound artist Nick Ryan and poems in the voice of King Balthazar by Teresa Lola, the former Young People's Laureate for London, who also voiced the poems. I spoke to Susan Foister, the show's curator and the deputy director of the National Gallery, about this remarkable work and how it's animated by the digital experience. Susan, who was Jan Gossart? Well, Jan Gossart was one of the most remarkable painters of the early 16th century in Europe, I think, but he was particularly successful in the Low Countries where he was working for some of the grandest people around the Habsburg court there. Um, I was intrigued to see that he'd been to Italy not long before he painted the Adoration. How much did that influence the, the painting that we can see today? Yeah, he'd been to Italy with Philip of Burgundy, and it's something that people debate a great deal because those people who think that um, going to Italy ought to have given some great transformations to his art, they're looking for lots of Italian influences in in the painting. And there are some there, some quite subtle ones. Um, But I think people could go to Italy and still produce the kind of painting that we see here, which owes a lot to earlier painting in the Low Countries. Indeed. So so the scene is a nativity, but it's I guess the the thing that really makes it stand out is that, yes, we have the uh, elements you might expect from a nativity painting, but there's just so much more in this painting, isn't there? So, so much more. It's such an ambitious painting. Yeah, although it draws on what other painters had made before, people like Hugo van der Goos a few decades earlier, um, this just does so much more. It crams it all in, really. And it's this combination of incredibly sophisticated space and absolutely wonderful details with his manipulation of oil paint with, with his brush in very subtle ways. Yeah, tell us about the space because you know one gets really lost in the details, as you say, and there's this this sort of sense of a a derelict palace. It's not it's not a stable. It's 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 a once glorious building of some sort. Tell us about that. It's an absolutely vast building. I mean, it it's centred um, in the middle of of the panel, so that Gossart can draw your eye into it and far beyond, and then you can look around it and up, and actually you don't know where. It ends, um, it disappears out of the side of the painting, it disappears out of the top of the painting. And um, it's, it's a ruined brick-built palace shown with remarkable perspective, I think. He, he does that so beautifully. The whole painting is constructed to draw your eye in and beyond. And what reason would Gossart have had to depict it in that kind of space? I think he was trying to show what he could do as a painter and, and maybe this was partly the result of what he'd seen on his visit to Italy. There are small details that seem to show that he'd recorded details there but he could equally well have taken them from engravings. But I think he was just trying to show that he could manipulate this space so wonderfully with so many figures in it um, on the ground and up in the sky. Um, tell us about the the incredibly ornate costumes that we see in this painting, because that's one of the amazing things, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the colour and the texture and the richness of materials that, that are being worn, not just by the kings themselves, but, for instance, by angels and everything else. I think this is one of the great joys of looking at this painting. And every single figure is different. They're wearing different combinations of colours and, and textures, um, 
Yes, it's it's a wonderful array. I, I particularly enjoy the angel top left, who's wearing a robe where the colour seems to be changing as as you're looking at it. it it's going from from yellow to green. Um, I mean, that's a fantastic colour. Um, but there are also some of the figures, particularly the three kings themselves, who are wearing most expensive elaborations. I think of of contemporary dress with with these fabrics that people looking at the painting at the time would have known cost thousands of pounds. So who was it painted for? It seems to have been painted for a nobleman very associated with the Burgundian court, somebody called Daniel van Buchhout, who wanted an altarpiece for his family chapel um, in the abbey at Gerardsbergen near, near Brussels. One of the things that's really striking about that is, you know, we presume that he is the kneeling figure, right, right next to the Christ child and and the Virgin. It seems very likely that he's that grey haired man with a hairy wart on his face who is kneeling in, in front of the Virgin and child. Yeah. So again, you know, the hairy wart. If you're a donor, and 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 you're being depicted by a painter in this glorious painting, what would you make of that? <laughs> well, I think one of the most remarkable things about this sort of virtuoso painting is that it was all made to be seen at a distance. So probably only he would have known that the wart was there, and and that was a sign that it was a true representation. But people coming to admire this painting in in the church and pay homage to it wouldn't have seen all of this detail that we can now see today. And Gossart was so proud of it that he signed it twice. He did indeed, yes. He he signed it both on this rather fantastical headdress of the Black King Balthazar on the left and then on the silver collar that's worn by his attendant just behind. So I think Gossart really wanted to get us the message of who made this and how good a painter he was. Now tell us about the interpretation that you've now applied to this because it's you've not just you're not just showing the painting in the national and indeed not showing it at all at the moment because nobody can go there but you you've created this experience around it and it which is now available in 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 the form of a, a mobile experience for a mobile phone and you've involved on the one hand a sound design a sound artist and also a poet, um, Teresa Lola. Tell us about why you wanted to do that and what kind of material they've provided. Well, we wanted to really make the beauty of this painting and its story come across to people and perhaps to people who really had very little idea about the Christian story that's told here. I mean, it can seem a very familiar one, the three kings coming to to pay their homage, Um, but it can also seem a very unfamiliar one. And I think the way that Gossart actually paints it brings out quite a lot of the strangeness of the situation, that you're, you're in this ruin and why are all all these brilliantly clad people actually there with you. So Teresa Lola's poem, I think, brings out that sense of strangeness. Um, Balthazar is very much the prominent figure um, in the painting. So we, we thought that perhaps he should, he should be speaking, he should be giving us his version of the story and what he saw. And that was what Teresa Lola wrote about so beautifully for us in her poem. And you experience that um, in the presentation in the gallery after you've looked at all the details, but it's done in a slightly different way in the mobile version that we've we've just released. And then the sonification of the painting is, is very extraordinary because it, it helps you to roam around the picture 
and it focuses your your sight through hearing on all of the details. So you go from the, the foreground at the bottom where there's a dog scrabbling around the weeds and um, trying to eat a bone, so you get the sort of crunchy sound. And then you go further, and there are animals, of course, at the centre of the painting, traditional in the nativity, and you you hear the sounds of those animals, you know, cows and and sheep. Um, And then there are unearthly sounds that you get to, particularly um, as you go up the painting and explore the the heavenly sights and sounds, the angels. Um, There are some beautiful sounds that Nick Ryan, the sound artist, has devised to give you a sort of sense of, of the supernatural. It is a very strange painting, I think. So we wanted to bring out that strangeness and take away some of the familiarity, I think. One really lovely example, actually, was that I've never I've seen this painting lots of times, but I'd never noticed that one of the shepherds had a either a penny whistle or a recorder of some sort. And until I was looking at the um, this, this mobile experience, I never noticed that. And so when you use this very detailed process of going over the different elements of the of the composition, you can zoom in on this figure and suddenly you hear this music. Of a, is it a penny whistle or recorder? But it's a wonderful moment anyway. Yes, I mean, it, that's a very good example of um, yeah, your eye being drawn by something that, that you hear. And obviously we tried to make the sounds as authentic to the period as, as possible. So, you know, he'll be playing something that um, Gossart would have heard played too. Now, as I mentioned in the intro to this, that you closed this exhibition at the National seven days after it opened, and you will at last have the chance to open it back up again, even if it's only for a few weeks, when in, in May, at least we hope. Yes, that's, that's absolutely true. We're very much looking forward to that. It's, it's wonderful that people will have the chance to actually see it um, in the gallery. Okay, well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to tell us about it. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Sensing the Unseen, Step Into Gossart's Adoration, Mobile Edition is available for Android phones now, and the exhibition at the National Gallery should reopen, pandemic permitting, on the 17th of May and continue until the 13th of June. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks to Axel, Tanya, Jeff and Susan. And thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.